The world is crazy, it's pretty clear. You need to know why, how it affects the lives of those we hold so dear. I can't explain everything, but together, maybe we can find our way. Aren't you tired of the violence, the hatred, the racism? We need a brand new day. And what about climate change, housing that's substandard but still unaffordable, and our public education system that favors some and leaves so many others behind? But who's going to pay? And then there are the jobs with wages so low they make you feel worthless as you struggle to pay the rent and all the other bills piled high. Yes, we need a brand new day. Is there enough hope among us to overcome despair? Enough wisdom to overcome ignorance? Enough generosity to overcome deprivation? Enough goodness to overcome all those who claim to be patriots but hate their government? We need a brand new day. That's right, a brand new day. This is Lehigh Valley Discourse, only on WDIY, and I'm your host, Alan Jennings. And that would be me, and this would be the award-winning Jennings Report. Today is the 42nd anniversary of the day Mark David Chapman murdered John Lennon, a really important date in my life, and we're going to talk more about John Lennon a little bit later. I must admit that I don't understand American voters or even Lehigh Valley voters, and I really don't get Republican voters. I have no idea how my Republican friends can possibly support that orange guy after all the damage he has done. I'm just as confused by the local Senate race in which a Trump mercenary defeated my friend, Pat Brown. I've known Pat Brown since he entered the Pennsylvania House of Representatives. During my 40 years at one of the Lehigh Valley's most consequential nonprofits, I worked with a lot of legislators from township supervisors to U.S. senators. In my opinion, and with all due respect to my friends in the Pennsylvania legislature, Pat Brown was the most effective lawmaker I dealt with in those 40-plus years. His top legislative achievements include bringing tens of millions of dollars to Allentown School District, one of the most resource-starved school districts in the Commonwealth. He increased funding for early childhood education, understanding how it pays for itself, and so many other cool things. The crowning achievement of Pat Brown's huge portfolio of success is the Neighborhood Improvement Zone. It's not only a brilliant initiative that successfully manipulated the marketplace to save the third largest city in the state, it was a result of extraordinary political skills in a world where divisiveness rarely allows anything to get accomplished, especially anything bold, big, or benefiting just one community. When the voters in the Republican primary unceremoniously tossed Pat out of his Senate seat, replacing him with someone who was aligned with Doug Mastriano and Donald Trump, and someone who will never reach the pinnacle of political power Pat Brown reached, I wonder if those voters were aware of the damage they were doing by voting the chairman of the Appropriations Committee out of office. Tonight on the Jennings Report, here on WDIY, my guest is none other than the aforementioned best legislator of the last 40 years or more, and that's Pat Brown. Pat, welcome to the show. Alan, it's a pleasure to be with you. Thanks for having me. I want to start by saying I'm sorry. I had nothing to do with it, but I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I just, um, you know, I, I guess my first question is, have you passed the stage of, you know, being in a fetal position and sucking your thumb <laughs> after all this? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I had uh, 20 years of service. It was tremendously fulfilling. You know, as you mentioned, we had, I think, in partnership with you and others, accomplished a lot. Um, and I'm hopeful that at the end of the day, uh, that we've made a difference, and uh, uh, there's always always another day to uh, to invest and make a difference, and hopefully that's what I, I'll look to. What was it in your childhood, I guess, that led you to to a life of public service? 
Well, if I got the the bug for public service from anyone, it would have been my, from my mother. My uh, grandmother, uh, her her mother was a, a war leader in Jersey City, and they, my mother and my father moved to the Lea Valley in 1962. My my mother was actually recruited for the state house seat that I ran for in, huh. in 1994 back in the 80s because she had expressed an interest in in, um, in elected office. Uh, it would have been for my mother. And during my school years, I served on student council and I was class president at Central Catholic and uh, a senator at uh, Notre Dame. I always appreciated the the value and the satisfaction of, of elected service. And uh, I decided to uh, reach out with my mother, actually, back in 1992 to Charlie Dent, uh, who I go back with my whole life, and asked him if there was an opportunity that comes up in the state assembly. Just keep me in mind. And in 94, Karen Ritter, who was uh, a longstanding House representative, Democrat. along with her father yeah. in in uh, South and East Allentown, decided to, re- uh, to run for lieutenant governor, and the seat opened up. And it was a very Democratic seat. Um, yes, it was. It was a primary that had th- uh, four Democrats and me, and I just spent the summer uh, walking around the streets of South and East Allentown, and I was fortunate enough to win. And that was 28 years ago, and, and now uh, hopefully... Over that time, it's been um, it's been valuable for me. I know it's been valuable for me, and hopefully for others. If a kid graduating from high school asked you what the trick is, how do you get to the level of, of the difference that you were able to make? Would you have advice? You know, it really comes down to first the the virtue of listening. Listening that's and something I don't know how to do. Just <laughs> well, some of the best advice I got uh, coming into the assembly was from the the Speaker of the House at the time, um, Matt Ryan, who told me, you know, you, you probably have a lot of energy and ideas of what to do, but it's probably a good idea for the first six months to sit back and listen so you can learn from the other senior members as to how to do the job, you know, regardless of the policies you want to advance, how you do the job. And I spent those first six months just trying to learn, and it was, you know, a very valuable time for me. And Understanding that at the end of the day, learning would lead to the ability to pursue collective action because I could take on and realize the the priorities and the positions of other members. That you have to be willing to understand the most, at least from my my perspective. And this is maybe not the same in every state, but in Pennsylvania it is. Um, that collaboration and compromise has to be the overriding principle. Um, we are a mixed state. We're a state that is very diverse. And if you want to get stuff done, you got to be willing to accommodate the opinions of others. You're never going to get things done if you just want to advance your own opinions. And I, I would say I was kind of built for that because I, I'm a middle child in a large competitive Irish-Italian family, which is a condition that leads to being extreme, as Brent Franklin would say, an extreme moderate. Yeah. <laughs> that you know, I'm a middle child too, so I get it. <laughs> To understand that if you if you if you want to be productive in elected office, and that means advancing public policy, that consensus and collaboration is the way to go. It's the only way to achieve results, and the accommodation for others and their opinions and how how they see things and how you see see things and trying to pull them together towards some 
collective interest and compromise proposal is the way things get done. And in modern politics, that might not be that popular. But regardless of how politics changes, in the end of the day, it's got to be gotta make friends. Things, you got to have allies. Yeah, right? that's how things are going to work. Um, I don't know if I ever told you this, Pat, but when some of the more sophisticated interest groups around the state figured out that you were who you were and able to do what you did, I became very popular. <laughs> and people from all around the state would be calling me, do you know the Senator Pat Brown? <laughs> yeah, I know, I know Pat. <laughs> and um, one of, the, of those cases, as an example, was the Neighborhood Partnership Program. That program enabled us to bring millions of dollars into essentially a private CDBG program for local communities. And the funding hadn't gone up in 50 years. It was still stuck at 1968 level. I came to you, and you got it done. You doubled the funding. Man, I, that, now I'm like the most popular guy in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. <laughs> it's a, it's so, a gr- I talked about my, that program, my first election. That's a great program. It is a good program, yeah. and we appreciate the support you gave yeah. it, I'll tell you. You got a lot of his, uh, legacy, my friend. I, I, you've got to know that. Would it be a dumb question to ask what would be at the top of your pile of accomplishments? Um, on a statewide perspective, the most satisfying thing I'm involved in, and you mentioned it, was the Commonwealth's position for our youngest children. Mm. Back in, More than than this. Well, that's on a local basis, which hopefully will become, a, over time, may a become model. a statewide thing. But on a statewide basis, it's been what we've done for OE education. We started in 1998 just with a conversation about why this is important. The Commonwealth had no investment here. Right. Um, zero. Um, no position with Head Start. Nothing in other programs that might uh, be worth investing in. And over time, what ended up to be a couple people in a room, and after the meeting was over, there was extra donuts. We turned this into a, a statewide advocacy network of providers, business people, the military, law enforcement, all understanding why this is important for the future of the Commonwealth and why it does has value for all those disciplines. And with that diverse network, able to touch legislators across the state who have different priorities. And we've gone from no investment to one of the largest investments in the nation in Head Start huh. and a total investment of over $400 million. That's um, very impressive. And that's not only me, but I, in my involvement in that at least for me, um, on a statewide basis, is probably my, my most satisfying. Locally, obviously, you know, trying to do something for our cities and the challenges of our cities has been very satisfying to me. What few people know is that every piece of legislation that moves through the process has, also has to go through the two chambers' uh, appropriations committee. It's a Reagan-era measure that was designed to make sure lawmakers and the public knew what the cost to taxpayers would be of any new regulations they passed or whatever. It sounds like that would give you, as a chairman of the Appropriations Committee, enormous power. Is that right? And and did you use it much? The Appropriations Committee is really a subset of the entire Senate and the House a subset of the entire House. Every bill that advanced through each chamber has to go through us, has to go through that committee. So... Before it can be considered by the, the full Senate, the Appropriations Committee sets the agenda. Really, I tried to focus the Appropriations Committee on its core function, and that was what the, as you mentioned, what the cost uh, or savings of a bill was. Even though it was something I could use to advance something I wanted to advance or stop something I wanted to stop based on the policy of the bill, uh, because everything had to come through me, 
I try to focus just on what the fiscal realities of the bill were so that the members could decide if they wanted to advance it based on the cost or savings of the bill. But in substance, for a member who wants to use it that way, it is a very powerful committee because you can decide if the agenda of the Senate and the majority of the Senate is going to advance or it's going to stop. I tried to Tried not to. I don't think anybody knows that except a few of us. (laughs) There were sometimes there were bills that didn't advance because I thought they were bad for our region. You know, that's, I didn't always deflect on that, but for the most part, I I try to stay with the purpose of the committee. Over the years, I think I asked you about 100 times why you didn't switch to the Democratic Party. Your sensibilities are not where this Republican Party is, as far as I can see. Um, I'm pretty sure that you're, that the Democrats are smart enough to recognize talent when they see it. <laughs> and so I'm just wondering uh, if you want to give an explanation for why the heck you're not a, not a Democrat. I'm. Your mother was? Your father was? They were, yes. And an Irish Catholic Republican is still a huge minority. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Tell me. You know, my, my grandparents, I think, um, I don't think ever voted Republican. Hmm. You know, that's, that was Irish Catholics were some of the most loyal Democrats you could ever find. Yeah. If you could find a Republican in Bayonne, New Jersey City, or Queens at that time, it was still hard to find. Uh-huh. My main reason for choosing the Republican Party was f- really for fiscal reasons. I-, I do believe that conservative philosophies as far as the government's relationship to business leads to greater investment and greater jobs. That's the really the reason why uh, I chose it. However, I do see that as a means for government to realize additional revenue which allows government to do what it should do, and that is make people's lives better. Mm-hmm. And the believers' seats with that conservative philosophy into government, it's my opinion that they tend to be the highest. And we can invest in our kids. We can invest in uh, the needs of our people who, who have needs to human services, people with disabilities, our senior citizens. That is the fundamental reason why I'm a Republican. But my, my interest in terms of what government should do I would believe is pretty moderate. And I, yeah. I think part of that is the capital I've spent in, in public education. One thing I, I like to mention, we spent a lot of time in education finance. The most challenged district in, in the Lehigh Valley is Allentown. Without a doubt. Um, yeah. Allentown, over 25 years, has received a 550% increase in funding. The average over that time was 120%. Philadelphia is at 170%. There is no district in the nation where the spread between the highest district and the average is broader than between Allentown and the average district in Pennsylvania. Mm. And that is something that has been not only my work, but collectively the work of people across the state who understand and appreciate the value of education equity. A lot of this started here. You know, the first formula we did to advance this uh, was led to the Allentown School District through a committee that was run by Lee Butts, yeah. I'm not sure if you remember what was called a costing out study. Right. That was yep, I remember it. Determine what it costs to educate a child. That started with a committee that Lee Butts started huh. uh, to try to get, because Allentown was becoming more challenged. Its wealth was shrinking. Uh, it was shrinking faster than the average across the state. Tax base was diminishing. Tax base was diminishing. And we started the committee here, and it was taken from here and was turned into an actual education formula that was adopted by the assembly and endorsed by Ed Rendell. It and was never one, implemented. No, it was implemented, sure. It was it was something that he had in place for uh, six of his eight years. When Corbett got in, 
uh, he decided to go in another direction. That's and probably it, when I asked you the 97th time, why aren't, aren't you a Democrat? Well, <laughs> yeah, it, it, to not believe that public education, the access to public education, shouldn't be wait, based on where you live. Mm-hmm. I, I really believe that that is a bipartisan I opinion. I think and the way we be. fund public education in this, in this country is what is our most effective way of keeping some people down, you know, the, and keeping the disparity that's in place, the inequity of, of our world. Yeah, um, what do you miss most about being in the Senate? I've really just appreciated the other day when we can advance policy, working with people like you. You know, I, you've meant a lot to me over my career. <laughs> um, and my interest, I came in as someone who didn't understand. I came in as a public accountant. I came in right. focusing lawyer, right? on taxes and law. You know, associating with you made me understand why a legislator's job is bigger than just what I came to the to office with, and that was accounting and taxes. Your advocacy to me during the welfare reform in 1995, the neighborhood partnership program, you know, those are the kind of things that I, I had adjusted over time based on leadership and advice and advocacy from people like you, hmm. you know. And the ability to get things done that makes difference in people's lives, which I think we do. You know, people have a cynical opinion about politics, but at the end of the day, when we can advance a new formula in education to fund public education, special and basic education, when we can invest more money for early education, when we can put more money, double the money for the Neighborhood Partnership Program, those are the kind of things that are always meaningful to me. Yeah, and me too. Working with you, with you and making those happen. That's why we, we had such a good relationship yeah. all these years. Yeah. Very few people understand power and its appropriate use. You are one of those few and you aren't one of those big mouth, know it all, testosterone charged thugs. <laughs> not, 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 I'm not, no, me and my, our president. Yes, I do. I mean our president. Um, but you're actually mild mannered and humble guy. Do you have any kind of thoughts about the use of power? I mean, because you have about as much as you can get in a, in, a, in a state legislature. What is your, I mean, you, you obviously weren't going around threatening to beat people up. You know, you're not, you know. So how, how did you pull the stuff off? Oh, in the end of the day, it's through. No one in the assembly has unlimited political capital, unlimited power. You have, there are steps in the process you you have to respect. People like me, who was in a position of authority, have more than most. But if you keep your feet on the ground, and that's the time you have to decide whether you want to retire or not. If you keep your feet on the ground and your priorities are towards the best interest of your constituents and um, the people you serve, then the use of power is not inappropriate. Now, I've always believed that— Oh, I agree completely. I've used my—and it's come through longevity. I I ran for the Senate after Charlie moved on to the the Congress, and I was was the appropriations chair in my 20th year. Um, Mm. I believe I've put the time— and the investment in and the background that I had allowed me to execute the job in a way that was satisfactory. But, you know, to, to use that job in a way that, that I believe makes people's lives better and is not just self-serving, then power is used appropriately. Yeah. You know, it took some influence to get the neighborhood improvements zone done. It took some influence to get the education formulas done unanimously. It took some influence 
to continue to push for additional money for early education. That takes some influence to do that. But if it's targeted the right way, it makes sense. You're listening to the Jennings Report on WDIY. I'm your host, Alan Jennings. This is WDIY. My guest tonight is Senator Pat Brown, who is, I guess, technically, the session's over and you're done, right? I mean, you're now former Senator Pat Brown. Yes, I'm former. I don't like the sound of that. (laughs) I'm former Senator. Yep, I'm retired. You're going to have a whole new, there's going to be a bunch of new members. The House has flipped over to Democrats, apparently. Do you have any advice for your former peers or for any of the newcomers coming in? Is there any kind of like wisdom you want to impart that's coming from Pat Brown, legacy man? I think... What, is, what has changed over time, and this is part of this is technology and how people communicate, is there's not enough collective interest um, going on in the assembly now, not enough collaboration going on in the assembly now. Members find it satisfactory just to communicate individually through social media and advancing their own interests in social media. Mm. Finding ways to uh, collaborate and to advance public policy as um, a collaborative work product is what is, in my experience, is always what has led to positive results. Um, when we got the basic education funding formula done, it was a group of people that were from Philadelphia to the Allegheny Forest, up in the Endless Mountains, all sitting down, trying to find a place to land. In the end of the day, we got something done that everyone on that committee agreed to. And it was something that, because of that, ended up being supported by everyone in the assembly. There was not one negative vote towards that. I am really afraid, Alan, that that's not possible anymore. That the ability of groups of with different intentions and, and different political interests can't sit down and work things out towards a common interest. They're going to recalibrate this commission to update the basic, basic education funding formula this year. I'm really afraid it's not going to get, it's not going to get anything done mm. because right now there is more interest on members to advance their own brand rather than finding a place where they can land with other folks that might think differently than them. And in the end of the day, the only people that's going to hurt is the people they're serving. Mm. Um, and I'm hopeful that that can come back to where it was. Do you have any idea who your successor will be as chairman of the committee? Oh, uh, that was already done. It was a oh, it uh, election was, uh, was done in November. It was uh, Scott Morton, from Lancaster, Lancaster County. Lancaster. Scott served in our committee. He's a he's a reasonable guy, smart guy. Um, I'm I'm very positive about his his future in that job. We only have a few seconds to go, but I want to if, ask you if you can tell us anything about where you're going from here. Bunch of balls in the air. Nothing nothing set right now. I'm officially retired right now. <laughs> retired as of last Isn't that week. Weird? Isn't it hard to say. I hate, I can't. I don't like it personally. <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't, you know, I, I'm not in a position of, of employment right now. I went on official retirement, but I have um, some balls in the air, and hopefully I can continue to serve. But well, um, I no, wish no you the best of luck, Pat. You deserve to have everything going right in your life. And um, you've been listening to the Jennings Report on WDIY. I'm your host, Alan Jennings. And my guest is my good friend, longtime friend, Pat Brown, a fellow Orioles fan, and uh, Talk about I that. appreciate the good work he's done. <laughs> so, Pat, thanks so much for being here. Uh, stick around. Uh, next, after a quick break, we're going to hear my final thoughts.
The following thoughts and opinions do not necessarily reflect those of WDIY, its affiliates, staff, members, and volunteers. Welcome back to the Jennings Report on WDIY. I'm your host, Alan Jennings, and these are my final thoughts. Tis the Christmas season. I love this time of year, from Linus's soliloquy from the Gospel according to Luke to the dude in the goofy red suit. I must admit that my faith has taken a big hit over the past few years, but we could all do our world some good to stand in front of a mirror and ask ourselves the question John Lennon asks in his Christmas anthem every year, and so this is Christmas, and what have you done? Good question. The Christmas story challenges us to be better people, not just better Christians. And it's yet another demonstration of the radical, even revolutionary focus of Christianity. Anyone who has ever read a chapter of the Bible can tell you that tax cuts for those who have and budget cuts for those who have not is utterly inconsistent with the faith. And yet Christians all over this country will show up on Christmas Eve and have nothing to say to those who have so little. In many churches, they'll be more likely to talk about guns than the poor. But this story has an unwed teenager, pregnant, conceived out of wedlock, homeless, the news being brought by the angels not to kings or queens, but to shepherds, the riffraff of their time. If they knocked on your door, would you take them in? This is just one of many stories that affirms that God is not on the side of those who can, but those who cannot, not those who have, but those who have not. Each of us has, then, an obligation to love others, friend or foe. Not easy, especially the foe part, but we can all do a better job of trying. And I don't mean contribute a can of food to a local pantry. Even a $100 donation to Second Harvest, which I created back in 1982, is not enough. Direct assistance has its place, but it will do little to lift someone out of poverty. Charity isn't the answer. Justice is the answer. Fairness, inclusion, empowerment, even resistance. When Trump raises a fist, you raise a finger. When some gun nut tells you that the Founding Fathers thought every fourth grader should have a semi-automatic, know enough about what the Second Amendment intended so you can expose the ignorance. When someone tells you they're going to vote to throw out a legislator who used his considerable arsenal of political tools to correct educational apartheid, go find 5, 10, 100 people who know better and get them to the polls. When someone is being bullied, step in between them. There are so many more ways to make a difference. Make a special effort to shop at or eat dinner with an entrepreneur who is black or brown. Make a donation to an historically black college or university. Look at a bank's community reinvestment scores before you choose what bank to use. Get your friends together and arrange to make significant investments in urban playgrounds and coaching young kids. Stop thinking about how you can do the best for yourself and instead think about what you can do for others. Our world is dying. I won't list the many signs. But as the frequency of weather disasters increases, just as the scientists had been predicting for decades, and the human race pays the price for its failure to respond, it will exacerbate and accelerate the disparities that anyone who pays the slightest attention knows already exist. People who are hungry have a way of fighting for their survival. In the spirit of Christmas, whether or not you are a person of faith, especially in the Christian tradition, it's never too late to try harder but do so with urgency and the kind of generosity that actually feels like sacrifice. And next year, when John Lennon asks the question, have a good answer. Those are my final thoughts here on WDIY, and you've been listening to the award-winning Jennings Report. I'm your host, Alan Jennings. Merry Christmas.